Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. Um, we were picking up on page 250. And if you remember, we had been discussing the, the furious nature of the warfare that we are engaged in with the, the demons. And uh, we'll continue along those lines, in particular with their, their tactics and how they do engage us and seek to draw us into sin. And then when we move on to the next hypothesis, the focus turns to not attributing, though, the sin to the demons, that we can be tempted, but we have to acknowledge in humility that our will weakens or we're negligent or in some ways we've given ourselves over to it and not relied enough upon the grace of God. And so, again, that we're not tempted beyond uh, the, the grace that God gives us to engage in that battle and to hold fast to his will. And so these are some of the things that we'll be looking at. Today we are on letter E on page 250 from the Drontcon. A brother who was being bothered by demons went to an elder and confessed the temptations that he was suffering. The elder told him, brother, do not let the temptations that are happening to you frighten you. For to the extent that the enemies see the soul ascending and communing with God, they are grieved and they melt from their envy. It is impossible for God and his angels not to be present when a man is being tempted and seeks a helping hand. So do not cease to raise your eyes to him continually and call on him with humility to help you. At the same time, when you are being tempted, think of the invincible power of God your infirmity, and the cruelty of the enemy, and you will swiftly attain the aid of God. So rather encouraging teaching that however fierce the battle becomes to recognize who it is that is with you on the battlefield and how swiftly God comes to your aid as well as the angels whenever you call out for help, when you acknowledge your own poverty and seek the strength of God, and uh, we're never without help in the spiritual battle. And uh, sometimes it can feel like we're we're isolated and that God has uh, left us uh, and abandoned us or that we are at the will of the, of the enemy and, uh, and that we're helpless in that regard. Uh, but the moment that we turn ourselves to the Lord is when we begin to experience and it's strong language that is used here the invincible power of god that this is what we are to think on that anything that we might come up against is not greater than the power of god and what he can accomplish within our life number two a brother asked an elder saying worldly people neglect fasting have disdain for prayer refrain from keeping vigil eat every kind of food, fulfill their desires, and their relations with each other, forgiving and receiving, devour one another, and consume the greater part of the day in swearing oaths and breaking them. How is it that in spite of this, they do not fall, nor do they say, we have sinned, nor are they excluded from divine communion? We monks are always engrossed in fast, vigils, zerophagy, the sleep uh, on sleeping on the ground and are deprived of bodily relaxation, mourning and lamenting. Why, in spite of all this, do we say that we are lost and condemned to Gehenna of fire? The elder groaned and replied, you are right, brother, in saying that worldly people do not fall. The reason is that when they fall one time into a deplorable, deplorable and fearful sin, they can no longer pick themselves up since they do not even have a place from which to fall. And so far as out of great ignorance, they have remained for quite a long time in their first fall and do not even realize that they have fallen. Why should the devil have any interest in wrestling with them when they are constantly lying on the ground? Monks, however, are openly drawn up against the adversary and are incessantly fighting him. This is why they sometimes win, but at other times are beaten. They do not cease falling and getting up again 
bothering and being bothered, striking and being struck, until by the grace of God they overcome the adversary and render him impotent and feeble towards themselves. Then, after they are completely at peace with God and unceasingly enjoy his calm and joy in their souls, they are at rest. So, you know, those who are living in the world and where there is not a spirit of repentance, uh, it can seem as though things go uh, easier for them, that they aren't in distress, uh, that they sort of move along easily with the world around them and don't find themselves in conflict uh, and in any way with the world or uh, even on a spiritual level and seem to be happy and accomplishing perhaps what they want. Whereas the monks, as he says, you know, are constantly engaged in this conflict, in this battle, and are engaged in the ascetical practices, wearing the mind and body in it, and finding themselves getting struck down at times and having to get back up, you know, through repentance. And it's a common frustration. And we talked a little bit about this the last time, that to engage in the in war uh, is to experience exactly what is described here in the Drontkan, that sometimes we are engaged in this constant wrestling with the temptations. And sometimes we are struck down, sometimes we are victorious until as we are told at the very end of the paragraph that by the grace of God, we, we find ourselves overcoming the temptations and then entering into the peace of Christ. Uh, but when we are in the midst of it, it can seem uh, as though we are spinning our wheels and that other people live happier lives. And it can make us question uh, the value of engaging in the spiritual battle. And I think I mentioned last time, I've had many people over the years say the moment they've started praying uh, is when they became afflicted, that you know, the things that uh, they struggle with seem to become more, more intense. Uh, once they began engaging in a deeper prayer life and ascetical life. Carol. Um, I had a question. Is this something I was wondering about? Um, is the evil one able to anticipate someone's pursuit of God and desire for holiness before the person might even be aware of that? So, for example, it seems like um, the conclusion is drawn that the temptations that one encounters occur kind of in parallel with one's striving towards holiness and repentance. And so I'm wondering is, is um, can someone be under the assault of the evil one in even kind of a ferocious way before they've even maybe in knowingly and intentionally started turning towards God, like can the evil one see something about that person and their potential and um, almost like an anticipatory attack? Well, I think when we read on a little further, especially in the next hypothesis, there is, you know, this sense, and it's even alluded to here that it's not as though they're never attacked. It's that the, they never get up. They never strive to get up. And so, you know, once that battle has been won, they sort of remain under the tyranny of, of the evil one. And, uh, but the demons, we we're told uh, by John Cassian uh, in one of the, in the coming pages, you know, have different ferocity uh, in, and different things that they will seek to attack in the individual. And sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't but they are all equally desirous of bringing down a soul. And so I think for any human being, I think there is a desire to draw, uh, draw us into the muck of sin. And so when they would see certain patterns or habits or vulnerabilities there because of one's behavior, I think they will seek to draw a person into sin. And it's, I think the battle becomes most ferocious though. We hear when, one enters into the spiritual battle, when one begins to put up a kind of resistance. In fact, we are told that the, the stronger the athlete becomes, 
the the more vicious and strong the the demons become that afflict afflict us uh and so there are various level categories of, of the demons themselves if you will uh, depending on uh how strong the individual is or how fully they've embraced the grace of god so i think some of the fathers will probably answer that with a greater clarity than i could you know i think you know certainly demons might anticipate certain influences that a person has in their life that could draw them into the life of grace you know that they begin making friends with those who are engaged in the spiritual life and things such as that where uh it becomes obvious that their life can move in a certain direction and so might be attacked in order to draw them away from that ambrose little can't recall if we've covered this before, but most of the strivings of the monks in these writings seem to be doing so on behalf of themselves. At least there is little note made of intercessory prayer. But I think I recall that a key aspect of Western monasticism, especially cloistered, is that they are ever interceding for the world and the church. Is this an accurate impression? And if so, why do you think they don't make much of it in the desert monastic spirituality. It's almost like, as in this reading, they more or less just consign the world and worldly and the worldly to hell if they're not entering into monasticism or the hermit life. It's a good question. And, you know, in everything that I've read about, uh, you know, the Eastern monks as well as the West is that they don't see themselves in isolation from the church as a whole, you know, that they enter into this spiritual warfare, uh, not simply for themselves, but uh, for, for all, and see themselves as kind of at the heart of the church. And so, you know, I think what we are engaged here, and, and one might see this too in Climacus, that the focus becomes very intense on what it is that we are struggling for. They're speaking to monks often about the nature, particulars of the nature of the spiritual battle. And so what the vices look like, how they manifest themselves, what, how we struggle with them. And so a lot of things are assumed or taken for granted. And this includes the, the sacramental life and things such as that. You know, this would have been part of their life on a, on a daily basis. And yet they aren't spoken of frequently within these texts. And I think because the focus of them is on praxis, you know, what, what one engages in uh, from day to day and moment to moment in the spiritual warfare. And, uh, and you know, I think with this particular text that we just read, uh, you know, I think the emphasis is on, you know, whether or not one is engaged, not so much dismissing those in the world as it is whether or not one is really engaged in spiritual warfare or not, who it is that the demons are going to focus their attention upon. And so if we're living in the world and, you know, there's not any weight or burden that we experience with our sin and desire for repentance, then I think the, the thought is that the evil one's not going to give us much mind or attention. And, uh, and so not so much in a condescending fashion as in simply acknowledging, okay, this is the nature of the spiritual battle. Anthony. If Machiavelli, Sun Tzu, and Vaughn, come on, Clausewitz, Clausewitz, have numerous strategies to take over an enemy. Demons would have many more insofar as they were present when we were created and are by nature more intellectual than us. So maybe they can perceive more than us and try to anticipate our future victories and sabotage them before we have an inkling that can be that we can be the victors. Yes, that's true. I mean, in terms of this knowledge that would be gained, uh, you know, they're, they never rest. There's a constant 
you know, uh, attentiveness to our movements and habits and the things that come into our life and influences, as, as I mentioned. And so I think if they see, you know, something emerging in a person's life that could draw them uh, to a life of sanctity, you know, I could see that, you know, that they, an individual would draw their attention. And so they might be living a life that is, you know, not very, uh, not deeply spiritual or particularly moral, but can see certain patterns opening up or again, individuals coming in their life where they could be particularly powerful, whether it's in evangelizing or uh, simply through leading a, you know, holy life that they might seek to undermine that movement to conversion. Jack, that's what I understand psychics to be in terms uh, of, well, insofar as psychics are, are guided and directed by uh, communicating with fallen spirits. Yeah, I think that that would be more, more accurate. You know, it's, you know, if they're not, you know, shysters, simple shysters that, you know, what spirit are they open to that gives them, you know, this capacity to envision certain things in a person's life. And again, this is something that we aren't very attentive to, you know, that if we're not being attentive to the Holy Spirit in our life, then we are going to open ourselves up to a whole host of other spirits. And one has to be careful with playing around with the occult or palm readers and all these kind of things. I was horrified. I had a friend who was a school teacher in a Catholic school. And she said, you know, a lot of the teachers would go out, you know, at lunch break to get their palms read or talk to, uh, what do they call them? I forget the name of them, you know. Fortune teller. Yeah, this is the word I was looking for, medium, right? So something along those lines. And, you know, it sort of bears witness to a kind of lack of faith there. You know, certainly a lack of faith in the providence of God. But there's a real danger in it, in doing it. Okay, number three. Abba Poyman said to Abba John the Short that when he besought God, the passions fled from him and he remained free from anxiety. So he went to an elder and said, I see myself at rest and have no warfare. The elder replied to him, go and beseech God that warfare should return to you because it is through wars that the soul makes progress. So Abba John besought God and no longer prayed to escape from warfare, but said continually, Lord, give me patience in wars. So it seems like an unusual thing, but I think it's probably a pretty common prayer, you know, that we, we want to be relieved of the warfare uh, that we experience in our day-to-day -day life. And we think that if we are being, if we are embattled and we find ourselves afflicted with temptations, that it's a reflection of the state of our soul, that somehow if we were living the spiritual life, we would be free of such things. And uh, unless one has reached a level of, of a, a certain level of sanctity, the reality is that we're going to be constantly embattled if we are engaged in the spiritual warfare, if we're simply engaged deeply in the spiritual life. And so somebody like St. Isaac says, you know, there's no Sabbath rest in this world for one engaged in the spiritual battle and one who's reached his level of sanctity, then, uh, you know, I think for all of us, the, the, you know, the same would be true, that the vigilance, the warfare, the depth of prayer, the ascetic life is to be something that's constant for us. And, you know, this, in our spiritual life, you know, I often talk about constancy, consistency, regularity, a role, and, you know, not simply entering into this kind of spiritual warfare in an episodic way, you know, that we have these holy seasons that are meant to help us deepen 
and perfect that practice, but they are not to be, you know, simple periods of endurance that we make our way through and then move away from completely. That, for example, the Latin fast is not meant to be something that we, you know, give up altogether after we come to Easter. You know, it's to prepare ourselves to enter into the Paschal mystery fully, to celebrate that. And so there might be a period where, you know, that fasting eases up. But, you know, often we step away from you know, the spiritual practices and the ascetic life almost completely, uh, unless those things are already a regular part of our life and continue to be so as we move on and, you know, come out of a period of Lent with a greater zeal and desire to embrace them more fully. Abba uh, Kopris said, blessed is he who endures toil and gives thanks to God. The same elder was once ill for a long time and remained on his bed. During that time, he gave thanks to God and never satisfied his own will. So gratitude to God is essential in the spiritual life. That if we believe that, that God only allows certain temptations and trials to come upon us uh, to the extent that we are able to endure them, and that by his providence, he can make them work for the good of those who have faith and love and trust in him, and that they will perfect us in our virtue and our desire for him. And, uh, and so our gratitude to God uh, bears witness to this, that we trust in that providence and trust in the gift of his grace. And when we lose that gratitude is typically when we, we turn away and begin to experience the things that come upon us as, as burdens, again, that we want to free ourselves from, or we complain about them, rather than uh, praying for the gift of patience and endurance that we might be able to make our way through them in a spirit of virtue or in a spirit of obedience. So this is an interesting example. You know, he's bedridden for a period of time. And uh, we don't know how long, but it sounds like a rather lengthy period of time. And is yet is able to hold fast to God through his prayer, not give himself over to a complaining spirit or to neglect his spiritual life in the midst of that illness. Now, he might not certainly have fasted or engaged in other practices, but kept his mind fixed upon God constantly. Ambrose. What does it mean never satisfied his own will there? Well, you know, I think sometimes when we become sick, you know, we begin to... Uh, let go of our spiritual life in order to tend to ourselves. And sometimes, you know, especially guys, <laughs> or maybe I shouldn't speak for every guy here, but, uh, you know, you know, you get a cold and then you sort of moan and groan about it and lay in bed and, you know, can watch YouTube or videos or something like that, you know, we take a vacation from the spiritual life and rather than in the midst of that illness, sort of uh, turning to God and, and relying upon his grace to endure it uh, by, in faith, that uh, as we would want to deal with any trial or struggle that we experience throughout the course of this life. And so often we will turn to the things of this world, you know, food, entertainment, anything to distract us from that trial that we're going through, an illness, rather than turning toward God. And so we will satisfy our own will in that way, rather than uh, seeking to embrace the will of God, 
which is acknowledging, okay, we're ill, but in the providence of God, that's been allowed to, to, you know, to come upon us as a particular trial, we could take it up in faith and allow it to, to transform us. And, you know, if we turn in upon ourselves, if we grouse about it, if we indulge, uh, you know, and, you know, simply eat out of our boredom, you know, run, run into, we have enough strength to run to the kitchen to get more food, but very little for prayer, it's, it seems, then, you know, we are satisfying our own, own will. Illness can be a hard thing in that regard, because I think it has a tendency to make us focus upon ourselves. And again, wanting to get over it or, uh, or wanting to distract ourselves from it. And so we seek our restoration. We seek healing and strength, not in God, but again, you know, through medicine or through, uh, distracting ourselves through various kinds of entertainment. Even the psychological strain, uh, with psychological strain, it's easy to turn to self-focus. That's right, you know, I think when we feel ourselves anxious or depressed, will be other times where instead of keeping our focus upon God and deepening that response to him, we will turn to the things of this world you know, looking for something to lift us out of it, to alter that mood in one way or another. An elder said that a certain brother was bothered by a thought for nine years and out of piety condemned himself saying, I have lost my soul, thinking himself to be the cause of the temptation. Later on, when he was weighed down and in despair about his salvation, although he should not have been, he said, let me return to the world since I have fallen into perdition. Then just as he was departing, a voice came to him on the road. The nine years that you were in temptation bestowed crowns on you. For this reason, return to your place and I will relieve you of your thoughts. So the brother returned and found respite. From this, we learned that wars provide crowns to those who struggle. A good line to underline that wars provide crowns to those who struggle, that you know, our struggling becomes an act of faith. And an act of faith brings upon us the grace and the strength of God. And again, it's for these reasons that we should not be disheartened if we find ourselves struggling with particular temptation for nine years or longer or burdened with something that, you know, that we aren't able to change, that it's out of our hands, that, you know, to enter into these things with faith uh, is, is not without the spiritual graces being given. And we might not see it at the moment that we're going through. We might only experience darkness. And on the other side, come to see the spiritual fruit. Our life might seem to be falling apart at its very foundations. And then something, you know, as we make our way through it, if we remain faithful, something can emerge that was wholly unexpected. You know, not, that we could not imagine in the sense of what God would be doing and why he would be drawing us through this and what he brings to evolve in our life. An elder said, at the outset, when a monk abandons the world to devote himself to asceticism, God does not allow the demons to harass this man violently lest he be frightened and startled by the experience and return quickly to the world. However, when a monk, with the passing of time, makes progress in his spiritual labor, then battles involving carnal desires and other pleasures, and likewise anger and hatred and the other passions, are unleashed against him. It is then that a man needs to be humbled and to mourn, condemning and accusing himself alone, 
In such a way, through temptations, he learns patience, acquires experience and discernment, and takes refuge thenceforth in God. So in reality, you know, when we enter into the spiritual life, uh, it might seem very difficult to us, but uh, God is actually protecting us, that if we were to experience the, the full force of the enemy's attack, we would likely be discouraged immediately. And uh, again, this is hard to believe at times. You know, we might seem to be greatly afflicted by certain thoughts, but uh, it's really God protecting us in, you know, the infancy, if you will, of our spiritual life until we gain something of the experience of the spiritual life and begin to enter into the spiritual battle more fully. And then gradually we experience the, the intensity of that battle increase. And with that then comes greater discernment. And, you know, we grow through our experience of this battle and begin to anticipate how the evil one is coming upon us, be able to uh, pick up little movements that show us where we need to be more vigilant or where we need to engage in deeper prayer. Anthony. Thus, the children of Israel, when leaving Egypt, were not led out to the land of the Philistines, lest they be discouraged by those strong people. Exactly. That, uh, you know, if they were to be led uh, to a place before developing this, you know, trust in the, the strength and the grace of God, then to go up against an enemy like the Philistines would immediately throw them back into uh, fear and anxiety. And there's one point where they scope out the land and they seem like grasshoppers, you know, in the face of these giants and are fearful. And often that can be true for us in the spiritual life. And so we have to be sort of careful too. And this is where I think spiritual counsel comes in, you know, that we engage in this spiritual life in you know a particular way that we listen to the counsel that is given to us in terms of what it is that lays the foundation of a strong spiritual life what is going to help us endure and have a spirit of constancy what is going to help us uh, understand the nature of the vices and what our primary vices are and where the battle needs to be waged and if uh, and, you know, where to moderate even enthusiasm, too, so that we don't uh, wear ourselves out and, or fall into pride by going to extremes. Some monks, thrown into confusion and giving way beneath the unbearable burden of grief, having been plunged into the depths of despair, have returned to the world in their hearts, while others returned to it in their bodies. As for us, my brother, let us never despair or become indifferent, but let us endure temptations with valor and long-suffering, giving thanks to God for all that befalls us. For gratitude to God renders all the machinations of the enemy useless. I, I found that phrase striking uh, and read it over and over again, that this spirit of gratitude, and we often hear, often don't hear this spoken about, I think, uh, in spiritual literature too much, uh, uh, in terms of how essential it is, you know, to have a spirit of gratitude for what it is that we receive, not only the blessings, but the, the battles that come upon us, and that in this, that we render all the machinations of enemies useless, that if we're able to acknowledge the presence of God in all of these things, then the battles, the enemy loses its capacity uh, to, you know, th throw us off of the path. That if we believe that, it, that we are being led by God and that we're being led through these trials, then the demons lose the ability to make us want to go back to the world. The, or make us want to flee from the particular circumstances of our life.
Just as one who is, has his hands full of pitch cannot clean them other than with olive oil, so also is it with us. From the moment we are defiled by sin, we are cleansed only by the mercy and love of uh, love for mankind of our Savior Jesus Christ. So let us come before him in every temptation, and let us persist in calling on his aid, giving him thanks for everything. And then we will see the adversary overcome with ease and sitting opposite us, weak and powerless. And so there's a little play on words here. I think the authors try to show us uh, that olive oil and mercy are closely related. And so olive oil being used to, to get something like pitch off of one's hands. And so when we avail ourselves of the mercy of God when we fall into sin, uh, but do so with a spirit of gratitude and calling upon him, uh, that we are able not only to be cleansed, but uh, freed from the control, again, of the demons, that we make them powerless in that battle, that we strip them of that capacity to manipulate us, to make us, us think that God has abandoned us, or that we need to give up on the spiritual battle in some way or another. Number seven, an elder said, if God forgives us, although we do evil deeds and is long suffering towards us, will he not help us all the more if we are willing to do good deeds? So, you know, if God, even in the face of our sin, is long suffering towards us and is not harsh with us, you know, isn't he going to respond? even more so when we are uh, willingly, when we willingly enter into this struggle and do so with a spirit of gratitude. You know, if we are ungrateful and complaining as well as uh, fully engaged in you know, a life of sin, if, if he's patient with us then, if, if we show gratitude towards him, and a willingness to enter into the struggle, isn't he going to help us all the more? So why, why, why should we fear or be anxious about anything in regards to the spiritual battle? That we have a God that, again, that's set on our salvation, that's going to provide us with everything that we need to engage in the spiritual battle fully. Letter F from St. Ephraim the Syrian always one of my favorites. He who wishes to be pleasing to God, to be proved through faith an heir of God, and to be called a son of God, born of the Holy Spirit, must above all arm himself with patience and long-suffering, enduring with valor and gratitude the afflictions and needs that he will encounter, namely physical illnesses and the passions, the reproaches and insults of men, or the various unseen battles which are brought against the soul by the spirits of wickedness who aim to entice it into negligence and debility. So a similar line of thought, but always put beautifully by Ephraim, that again, we would endure all of these things, uh, whether it's afflictions from the demons or illnesses or our passions, uh, trusting in God, and again, in the spirit of gratitude, to be able to receive these things, not as punishment, but as a gift. That on a spiritual level, that's exactly what they are, because they are strengthening us in the life of grace. And they conform us more and more to Christ himself. The more we're engaged in battle, the more that we place our faith in God, the more that we do God's will in the face of the hatred of the world or the attack of the demons, the more we become true confessors of the faith, the more fully we bear witness to that self-sacrificing love within the world. And so how can we not see these trials, these difficult things as coming to us from the hand of God for our blessing? rather than as punishment. And it's a hard thing. I mean, 
and I don't want to be cavalier about this because I think the darkness can be great and people can get to a point where they feel that God has abandoned them and that, you know, everything seems to fall apart around them. They lose their support on, you know, er, you know, from every, every side and, uh, and feel alone or isolated in that battle. And so it can be very difficult. And I, I think this is why the father's, keep reiterating what they do that don't see it as punishment and embrace it in the spirit of gratitude and it will bear fruit for you on levels again that you might not be able to see at the moment and you know one of these that they repeat i think we see here is the is the ability to discern the truth you know, when you're engaged in this warfare and you've gone through it over and over again, you see the movements of your own heart. Maybe you've fallen many times. There's the same kind of attack over the course of time. Your capacity to see that truth grows and you become strengthened in that spiritual value. You gain a kind of spiritual wisdom and knowledge. And so one, even one's falls oftentimes are used to become blessings for us uh, so that we avoid greater falls in the future. God permits all these things in his providence in order that each man may be tested by different afflictions and that those may be revealed who love God with all their hearts insofar as they endure all the assaults of the evil one valiantly and gladly and are not alienated from their hope and faith in God, but always wait with faith and much patience to be delivered from sorrows through grace. Hereby, they will be able to cope with every temptation and in such a way will attain to the promise being themselves made worthy of the heavenly kingdom, since they have walked in the footsteps of the saints in many ages, as well as the footsteps of the Lord himself, and have become partakers not only of his sufferings, but also of his glory. So again, all of these things hold within themselves the capacity to draw us uh, to greater sanctity, but also to share in the very glory of Christ himself. Knowing that Christ went through this, as well as all the, all the saints, then our, our willingness to enter into it uh, should be great. That if our desire is for God, if we have faith in him, then far from fearing these things, when we encounter them, we should take them up in that spirit of gratitude and hope. And, you know, again, this is why reading the lives of the saints and the writing of the saints becomes so important for us, because we know the nature of the battle. We know how quickly we can be drawn into darkness and despondency about our state in life or our spiritual struggles. And so to have this constant uh, image before us of the saints, as well as their teachings, all serve to uh, encourage us in the spiritual battle. And, uh, you know, I think this is, the, again, the value of reading works like this. And so many of the saints tell us, you know, reading the lives of the saints is essential for the spiritual life reading the scriptures, the life of the saints, the writings of the saints. Anthony. There's something in Revelation that, that cowards can't enter heaven. God is giving us the practice we need against cowardice. And Pope St. Peter has something about the trying of our faith, working patience, etc. Right, and we hear within the scriptures, you know, make sure your endurance carries you all the way, that endurance gives way to hope and hope in the promises of God. This is what it reveals. And it's hope that carries us through the trials, the hope in the promises of God. And so a lot of these trials uh, cultivate not only a deeper faith in God, but hope that allows us to pass through the times of darkness in our life when we can't see where we're going or why things are happening in, in the way they are. 
Be sure then to understand and to see that from the beginning, all the fathers, that is, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and martyrs, having passed through the way of afflictions and temptations, and having endured their various difficulties with joy and fortitude, were only able to please God because they waited in hope for the reward that is bestowed on the struggler for his exertions. This truth is consonant with Holy Scripture. My son, if thou come to serve the Lord, prepare thy soul for temptation and set thy heart aright and constantly endure. Sarah 2, 1 and 2. One of my favorite lines, in fact, 1 through 12, uh, often is read at ordinations or we'll put in the front of a, you know, a program, prepare yourself for trials. You're being ordained to serve, but also uh, to, uh, you know, engage in a kind of spiritual warfare. Uh, again, not for yourself, but also for others. Fulton Sheen, I think I've mentioned before, has some great writing on this, you know, that in seminary, you know, there's all this talk about being a good priest and, you know, embracing all these things and learning all these things to be a good priest. But he says, you don't ever hear somebody say, you know, that you're training to be a good victim, to conform yourself to Christ, you know, to die, to self, to sin, to be willing to lay down your life uh, for the welfare of others. And, uh, and, and so this is what we should be preparing for, not a life of comfort, but what we see in the life of Christ himself. And that should be especially true of priests. You know, it's not uh, a role that one embraces for financial gain or respect from others, you know, but rather to serve and also, you know, be willing to pour oneself out regardless of the cost. Okay. The apostle also says, but if ye by with, be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. And in another place, Holy Scripture says, accept everything that is brought against thee as good, knowing that without God, nothing happens. Indeed, the Lord himself blesses all those who struggle for the sake, for his sake and endure terrible tribulations, either openly for men or secretly from the spirits of evil, which, as it is said, struggle against the soul that loves God and which hurl different afflictions at it in order to prevent it from entering into eternal life to the extent that it has slipped into negligence and despair. Temptations then test and separate the souls that love God from those that do not love him. And in this way, they show which men are worthy of God and which are unworthy of him. And so, you know, how is it that we show that we understand what has been given to us, the preciousness of it? You know, what, what God has done for us and how he has poured himself out in love for us, withheld nothing for, from us for our salvation. And, you know, in order for that love to be requited, that our response is to be the same. You know, that the unconditional love and trust that we give to God uh, is to reflect you know, our trust in the promises that he's made to us, already what he's given to us in his son, but the promise then to draw us in, you know, through sonship in Christ into participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. So what is it the saints are saying, and Ephraim in particular, that we would not be willing to sacrifice in order to take hold of what God has promised us? and to express our love, our trust, our gratitude to God for, for what he has given us. And, you know, I think sometimes our, our lack of reflection upon these realities 
uh, hardens our hearts to it. You know, we don't see, we lose sight of what God has given. I think part of this is the temptation that we experience in the spiritual battle. It makes us lose sight of what God has given. And then to question, to doubt what it is that we undergo and the afflictions that we endure. And to see those afflictions as a sign of God's abandonment or lack of love, rather than God drawing us to himself and drawing us into a deeper faith and hope. And the hard thing about this is that we often do not want to reflect upon it. You know, it can, uh, you know, often daily, I'll do a little post on the particular saint of the day. And sometimes when you hear the stories of those early martyrs, it's just, it's incredible. And there's part, you know, naturally we shrink back from it because we think the things that they endured for the sake of Christ are almost unbelievable. And I think that a great temptation for us to in that is to see again, you know, how could this be something of God or where is God in the midst of this? And uh, I think it, it only, I think we come to see it only when we have immersed ourselves in the Paschal mystery very deeply when we see what God has done on our behalf, the self-emptying and the incarnation, you know, taking our poverty upon himself, the burden and the weight of our sin, you know, the consequence of it, death itself, and then giving, you know, giving us everything in order that we might be drawn into that life, the sacraments, the gift of the spirit, making us temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, when we read about these things about the saints and the martyrs we can lose sight of all that and begin to question god and i think when we it's not to be harsh about it because i think it's part of it's a temptation it's a struggle but we need to see it is exactly that a temptation that we fight against and have to pray and turn ourselves to god and ask him to deepen our faith and our hope in him even though on the level of human sensibility and sensitivity, it may be very hard for us to do that. It's a tough thing to pray for, too. Because if we pray for that, what if God leads us down you know, that particular path? So, the apostle also says, no, I'm sorry. Every soul then that wishes to appear pleasing before God should valiantly maintain patience and hope above all. And with these virtues, it will be able to endure and face all the harassment and uprisings of the evil one. For God does not allow the soul that hopes in him and waits on him to fall into such great temptation that it becomes desperate burdened beyond what is capable of enduring. Not even the evil one tempts and bothers the soul as much as he wishes, but only to the extent that he's permitted by God. For our fashioner knows to what extent the soul should enter into temptation and vexation and permits only that much. Again, you know, this is something that we are often tempted against in terms of believing in it, that God would not allow us to enter into something or to experience it and to know the vexation, as he says of it, without uh, seeing something within it that would draw us towards our salvation and that he could make work towards our salvation. Let us take the potter as an example. He fashions earthenware vessels and knows how long he should leave them in the fire. For if they do not pass through fire, people cannot use them. He does not leave them in the furnace longer than necessary, lest they be destroyed by the fire. And he does not take them out of the furnace before the proper time, lest they become brittle and prove useless. 
Similarly, we do not encumber all beasts of burden with the same load, but in proportion to the stamina of each animal. And again, a boat has certain marks which show up to what point it can be loaded so that it can sail the sea without damage. If God gave men such great knowledge and discernment for securely managing the illusory and corruptible things of this world, will not he who bestows wisdom and understanding know much better how many trials and of what kind are needed by souls that want to be pleasing to him, so that they may be useful to him and also be worthy of the kingdom of heaven? Just as hemp is useless and produ producing very fine threads, unless it has first been heavily pummeled, in the same way, the more the God-loving soul is tormented and roughened, the pure and more useful it becomes. And being humbled and refined through many temptations and afflictions and enduring them valiantly, it proves pure and more useful for spiritual labor. And finally, after it has entered rejoicing into the kingdom of heaven, it will become forever an heir of the heavenly bridal chambers. So, you know, even images like this are hard to believe that one is purified through these things and made into what we are to become, strengthened through them, uh, that we are brought ultimately to the goal that we desire and God desires for us by persevering through them. And so, again, to be able to see these afflictions is something that God is not absent from. In fact, just the opposite. He's very much present within them. And so they should not fill us with fear or despondency. But if the more that we turn to God, the more that we enter into them with a kind of zeal and take up our our prayer life, our spiritual practices with a greater zeal. And the next hypothesis is a beautiful follow-up to this, but it's incredibly challenging because it sort of acknowledges that uh, there is a kind of stamina and labor that is needed in the spiritual life and yet it can be lacking in certain generations that some struggle more than others and uh and you know i think that can be true and it can be true of our generation as well you know the, the idea of needing endurance and uh engaging in affliction and carrying our crosses not willingly and with a sense of gratitude uh, is, is sometimes things that we are not willing to do that become again signs for us that God has turned his back on us rather than being very present to us we're probably not aware of how how much the whole notion of the prosperity gospel has permeated our minds and our hearts you know, that if we are men and women of faith, God is going to bless us with an abundance of the things of this world or that, you know, things will move smoothly for us or we'll avoid a serious illness or the loss of someone we love or the failure of something that we worked at very hard. And, you know, it's so, you know, we can go along, I think, with a certain faith life, but in terms of on a practical level, how we live it, you know, are we more what Karl Barth called practical atheist? You know, that we, in our day-to-day -day living, both in our response to others, but how we engage in the spiritual life, act as if we have no faith at all. So challenging, but I think all important. Anybody have anything about any any of this hypothesis? Want to add to comment on question? 
tough stuff. Good for our winter Lent reflection. <laughs> okay, folks, we'll stop there for today and we'll pick up on Wednesday uh, with the Ladder of Divine Ascent for all those who can make it. So have a great week, everybody. And when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.